Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 12th episode of Relating to DevSecOps, where we jump into the development, security, and operational issues of today with representation from different disciplines, professions, and specialties so we can solve real-world problems with people that actually face them. We are really attempting to live up to that statement today. Um, and so in addition to Jameson, Simon, and myself, we're joined by our very first guest, Jen Molino. Jen comes to us from project management, agile scrum, um, you know, basically directing people like us to like communicate well and make sure that we get things done. And she helps us understand how three knuckleheads like ourselves can work better together. So Jen, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've all worked with you at some point in our careers, so we know you reasonably well, but I figured Maybe you could just start us off, introduce yourself, and let us know a little bit about what you do with product engineering, security, and DevOps um, for, in your own words, and we'll kick off the episode. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ken. I'm really happy to be here. Um, so I'm Jen. Uh, I uh, am a senior scrum master. Um, I've been in the role for five years now. Prior to that, I was a product manager, so I've, I've been pretty closely embedded with uh, Agile and Scrum as it you know pertains to software development on both sides. Um, in terms of how I perceive DevSecOps, um, to me, it's a way of balancing the needs of your traditional DevOps and your traditional SecOps teams, uh, integrating them in a smart way with some of the Agile methodologies uh, some of the Scrum principles um, sort of blended together within software development so that uh, everything is sort of harmonious. You don't have teams off in silos uh, working independently, you know, building something that's not going to really work well in terms of um, security features, right? You're, you're going to have somebody with the team that that understands how that all works and I think DevSecOps really blends that really well. Yeah, definitely. I think that we we are like really striving to make sure that at some point uh, we get to a stage where there is some representation from security in all of these in all of these teams. And part of the reason that we are are doing this podcast, right, is to figure out a way to make sure that that happens because I think that we all have this. Um, sort of view of DevSecOps, you know, Simon has his own view, Jameson has his own view, I have my own view, and you've, you've brought this other view to the table. And we're trying to sort of merge all those things together. So you said, you know, something interesting, which is you always make sure that you have security representation in these teams. Uh, and that's not always the case, I guess. What is that? How does that look to you to have security representation? You see that like from a security team or like a set of security requirements or like what is that actually, I guess, how does that manifest itself in in your ideal world? Sure. So we don't live in an ideal world, right? Like a lot of. <laughs> and that's uh, the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> we um, we don't necessarily have the perfect scrum team um, or the perfect situation, the perfect um, blend of teams. Uh, you know, that's just not reality. Um, we work in imperfect situations and we make we make do with things the best we can. So, you know, my approach is to look at it, at, you know, if if we had an ideal situation, what would it look like and try to 
um, work from there. Um, in terms of how I see that, um, it doesn't have to be an embedded, um, you know, security engineer within the team or a, an embedded DevOps engineer within the team. Sure, you can do that, and it works really well for some teams. It, it doesn't for others. Um, but I think it's still important to have those those pieces, your DevOps, your your SecOps. They still need to be integrated within the within the teams. And to me, that means being at the table, being a part of the conversations that are happening around um, architecture and design. And you know, they're involved before a a, a a product engineering team really sits down and starts coding. And that's sort of how I perceive it. I, that's really interesting. I feel the same way, but coming from being in product engineering, I I think you have two situations there. You've got what's usually a startup, right? You're going to have people who need to be across all things, and you're probably going to have some embedded folks, you know, people who are passionate about everything, including security, although most startups are probably not caring about security, to be honest. Um, my concern with having them, you know, quote unquote included, but not embedded is from what I've seen, especially as as you progress and mature in your career in security or in architecture, just in generally, you start to basically lose uh, kind of your your part in applications, part in design, and you become more of a guidance rather than someone who really understands the fundamental nature of systems. So I, I find myself often not frustrated, but find, can't find a good way to include security and, and architecture and sometimes DevOps into uh, you know, kickoff discussions and planning and design because I'm I'm more telling them what I think makes sense rather than trying to understand their grasp of things. So, you know, let's talk about this endpoint. How does it work? Oh, it hits this extra service. And there's all this complexity that the security folks will understand at a very high level, but not enough to really be on the same page. And I feel like that's usually what happens. Those requirements get lost and then you end up scrambling at the end or just calling it, you know, a V2 or or working on it later and it ends up somewhere in your backlog. Yeah, I I can see that. Um I think I think a lot of it has to do with and this sort of comes from I think a project management side in making sure that those pieces are included all throughout the process. Um maybe not in an in a situation like that, you don't have security deep in the weeds but they are aware that this thing that you are building is going on. Um, they know what is happening and, uh, you know, in a situation they can make the the decision, hey, this is something that I think is really important and I should be involved in, or I don't necessarily need to be involved in at this stage, but you have someone like a project manager, a program manager, sort of keeping everyone up to date on what's happening, what's going on, the progress of that project. And security will, you know, say, hey, we're at that stage where I think I really need to step in. But if you're not communicating that to them early on, you're not involving them, you know, at all. Yeah, and I, I think there's, you said it earlier, right? We don't really live in an ideal world where security is necessarily able to be embedded in every single team. And so I think what I'd like to do is maybe unpack that just a just a bit. And if we're talking about... Um, a situation where maybe security is understaffed and Simon, to your point, they can't be embedded, but they, you know, you feel like they, they should be because obviously you want them to understand everything that you're doing and, and figure out what the security implications are of that. And, you know, you don't want to think about that, or you may feel like you don't have the expertise to think about that. Um, 
Jen, how do you see like that communication path being created or what does that look like to ensure that security is kept up to date um, or that security is involved in these in these projects at the right time? Sure. So I think you and I have talked about this previously, um, uh, having to do with JIRA. And um, this is just one facet, one way to look at it. Um, if you're in a situation where they can't be embedded and they can't be involved in everything that's happening, um, I think it's important to, to always communicate, be open and honest and transparent. Uh, those are some core tenets of Scrum. Um, it's really important for for everyone involved in that project, for it to be successful, for you to be delivering something that works and is in the customer's hands and that they enjoy. Um, being able to look at tickets, you know, throughout the the process. So if if Simon's team is developing something and you have a, a you know an engineer on the security team that you know can't can't be there all the time, well, if they have access to those tickets or whatever means you're using to track the work that you're doing. Um, for them to be able to go and look or have access to um, those those pull requests and see what's happening and and know that uh, hey we're doing something that doesn't make sense and could put us at risk and they're in a, a situation where they can communicate that to the dev team because they've had access or information shared with them um, you know that's one way to look at it you could have a security uh, engineer attend stand up and be a part of that conversation that happens with the developers where they say, you know, hey, yesterday I worked on uh, setting up this endpoint. Today I'm going to actually start working on X, Y, and Z. And, and if you have somebody on security that is there and participating and actively engaged, you know, they may jump in with, with some feedback and say, I'd like to, you know, you're doing that today. Awesome. I'd like to pull up some time with you and, and see what's happening there so I can take a, a deeper look at it. Right. I can I can feel I can feel the security engineers saying like all of the things being thrown at the at the you know at their head right now like in their earphones they're just like ah because it's like you know I'm not always available so I can't always check these pull requests or I can't attend every stand up for every every single team or you know like I I can't be involved you know in all of these sort of processes that the development teams can be in, involved with because we don't have the staff so given like if that if those things are being drummed up i have sort of my like opinion on that but how do you, what would you say to those those engineers that are probably having those same thoughts right now the security engineers uh, this is a this is a tough one because i don't think that um i shouldn't say i don't think it would be tough for someone in that position to have the conversation that i'm going to say needs to happen the conversation that needs to happen is uh, within the leadership team. Uh, your leadership team has to be bought into the idea that security is important because if they are bought into that, then they will make sure that resources are available. Or if somebody doesn't have time because they have a conflicting meeting, leadership can say, you know what, you being able to attend uh, this backlog refinement session where they're gonna talk about the work that's going into this endpoint is happening. I'm going to make you available for that so that you can be there. Having that support is incredibly important. And if you don't have that, I think it's just going to be an uphill battle. So if you feel empowered to have that conversation, absolutely do it. If you have a scrum master, reach out to them. They are supposed to be your advocates. They can have that conversation with leadership. 
um, you know, I, I think it really has to come from the top. They have to be supportive of it. Yes. And I, and I do agree with that, that even if you don't have it today, that leadership is the path to that support, right? Um, you might, you might feel that you can't necessarily tackle that every single stand up right now. Um, and you might have to get creative with the, like you said, the tenants of scrum, uh, to, to figure out what that looks like. Uh, how do you feel about, so there's the, there's the concept of a standup for engineering teams and that, and so there's this idea that maybe a security representative could be a part of that standup. And if, if, uh, maybe they don't have the staff and they have leadership support, but they don't have the budget or something, how do you feel about, um, having, uh, like a second, what would you call it? Like, a, would it be a second security meeting or stand up where security can try to take the time frame of 15 minutes and consolidate that into multiple teams within an hour meeting or something like that, where it's almost like a pool relationship versus a, a push relationship yeah. um, to to try to get those same status updates from the security perspective on a weekly basis or something where maybe one security representative is responsible for seven teams. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I'm not like a hardcore. Um, you have to do Scrum by the books this way, and that's the only way to do it. I think what is truly important is that teams work well together, that they trust each other, um, that they are capable of getting the work done that needs to be done. And so if that means that there needs to be another meeting, um, ideally you're not taking a ton of time away from those teams, but if if it's going to get you a better, um, more solid product that is safe for your business, then I absolutely think that you need to, you know, do what's gonna work best for you. If that's having that meeting and, and sort of doing a, a brain dump or, you know, whatever needs to happen, I absolutely will will stand behind that and say, yeah, this is something we should do. Um, I really think it's it's important that uh, those conversations happen. And if that meeting needs to happen, it, it does. I'm speaking on what you just said, I'm curious. I think that the aspect that I'm missing is, is how do you market security in a situation like this? Because I, I think with Scrum, it's, there's definitely an umbrella, right? There is a level of protection where Kind of what you said, you, you have a scrum master, some form of leadership that you can use this as a tool to say, I can't do these things and this is why. This is historically how effective I am and how I plan. Um, but with, with security, and, and this goes to a little bit of the conversation me and Ken had in the last episode about bugs versus vulnerabilities, is I feel like a lot of times that, that will not get represented. You can have a project and you can say, here are the 10 things we need to launch. We've got eight out the door. With security, you're, you're remediating. You're not actually creating any any anything new so i'm curious what your thoughts are on how you show that value and how you show you know whether you're doing um you know you're treating security issues as tech debt or you're treating it as um you know whatever you, you want to do how, how do you market that to leadership to say okay you bought in that security is important and we're addressing these we're looping these people in conversations how do you how do you from a reporting standpoint say like hey this was a good idea i think if you can show data. Look, data is going to be of the utmost importance. If you can show that there is a cost associated and you can say, we either do this up front and we have somebody involved from the very beginning and we make concessions around 
um, time and budget or whatever it may be that's preventing your your team your security team from being you know successful um, you show that we have a cost up front but it means that later down the road we're not spending cycles working on those vulnerabilities that that work that comes out of building something that um, has those vulnerabilities within it if you can show that there is a benefit up front to doing that I think that's a great way to to go about saying this is why this is important if we wait and don't do anything now we're going to be paying for it later and that means not being able to get those new projects out the doors quickly if we spend a little more time up front and do that the right way we won't be burning those extra cycles that take away from you know new product development yeah and and one thing i want to add there simon is that uh you you mentioned an interesting perspective and oh, it, it is it is that uh how do you how do you uh bring value to security at the table when you're most when you're remediating something not adding value and i think that that's a misconception right i think that you're not you know security is not always about remediating vulnerabilities if you're remediating a vulnerability it means you know to jen's point that the requirement wasn't established early. And this is something we talked about in the last episode as well, which is security requirements are more than the remediation of a vulnerability through a feedback loop, right? It's not like we got to the vulnerability and now, you know, security's like, oh, you have to fix that. So that fix goes to the requirement stage and then gets planned and then pushed through. It's that, hey, you know, my application requires a user to log in. I need to involve security for authentication features or authentication process so that that requirement can be developed so that I can then say, yes, my, my product is safe and secure and whatever. So I think the concept that we are sort of always remediating vulnerabilities, if you, if that is like where you're, where you are living is that security is definitely not a part of the design process is not a right. part of the requirement process. I would say just to add on to that, right? Like if you're in that world, you're on that perpetual treadmill, right? Because vulnerabilities are going to come in all the time, right? And I think a lot of this is like treating vulnerabilities almost as like a little bit of an education, right? It's that, hey, we have this, you know, we have this issue. This issue, we have 12 other applications that look exactly like this application where we found the issue. Chances are we have, you know, 12 other issues. And I think that it's less about that feedback loop of waiting for that ticket and, and kind of building that security culture where someone says, hey, we found this issue, let's go fix it in the 12 other places before security opens 12 more tickets. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, we we had talked about, you know, it'd be great to have Jen for this in the last episode. So I think this is the, this is the moment. This is the moment where we ask, you know, how do you look at uh, security requirements, right, ver versus security vulnerabilities versus, uh, product bugs it's a couple different things that i think can go in different directions so in terms of security requirements i think that as much planning as you can do up front to build out uh your user stories um, to say that these are the explicit things i need and this is what i expect from that result to be able to have security put some of those together so that it goes into the build process uh, just sets you up for success. There, 
they've made their their needs known. These are the things that need to happen for us to be a safe and secure application, or you know whatever it may be. Um, that really sets you off on on the right path. I think if you look at it as product bugs, um, I think again you're going to spend cycles trying to fix those, and it's not really proactive at all. It's it's reactionary. You're not you're not being uh, upfront about it. I guess you're you're dealing with it after the fact, and there could already been damage done, right? Like that vulnerability could have led to some hack and you're the next Capital One or so, you know something to that degree. But if those requirements had been there up front, you could have prevented that early on. Um, I think you had a third one. No, I mean, I think you're sort of getting to, to the question is, and I think you've, you've, you've pitched what my viewpoint is, right? Like, which is, you know, solve them early. You won't have the problem. You won't have a breach, you know? And so that's the, that's the traditional security, I guess, viewpoint. I think what what I'm going for though is we know so we've talked about how you have this idea that security should be involved in the planning stage. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. We've talked through some ways that you can do that, getting leadership buy in and whatnot. Inevitably, you're going to discover some sort of security vulnerability that you may or may not have prepared for or there wasn't a requirement for. And Simon and I discussed in the last episode, like, you know we sort of got into this haze of, you know, a product bug has a specific requirement that wasn't met. And so a bug and Simon, you can correct me if any, if anything I'm saying, uh, is, you know, in contrast to what you revealed in the last episode, but basically you failed to meet a certain product requirement, which resulted in a bug, right? And then security might make the argument that you failed to meet a security requirement and that resulted in a bug. But security requirements and product requirements aren't the same. Whether that's a staffing issue or whether that's because security is not involved is neither here nor there. So the question is, do we handle security vulnerabilities in the same way that we handle bugs? Do we put them through a separate process? Uh, is there some sort of combination of that process that can be valuable? you know, or how do they differ? Like, you know, why wouldn't we put them into the same process or, or rate them in the same way? I can see it going either way. Um, and I think it's really down to what works best for the team, but, uh, I don't think they're the same thing. A product bug and a security vulnerability are not the same thing. A product bug is I wanted, uh, a search engine built and I needed it to do these three things and you only delivered on two things. That third thing that's missing, that missed requirement, that bug that is coming out uh, because it wasn't delivered up front. The security vulnerability is very different. Um, maybe security wasn't able to be involved during you know, requirements discussions and the build process and it's found afterwards. That needs to be treated differently than a product bug where you might have a feature that can't get out to customers right away. It's not the end of the world. But if you have a security vulnerability that is, um, you know, impacting your business that could result in a loss of money, a loss of, of trust in, in your brand, um, that needs to be addressed immediately. And I think that um, you can have a process where you work bugs and vulnerabilities together if that's how you want to handle it. But you're always, I think the focus should always be to prioritize those vulnerabilities. Again, you might not have a feature out to a customer that's okay. You're you're not hurting the way that you would be if if there was a, a critical breach. I think. 
Um, or you could have an entirely separate process where you've built out some workflow that allows vulnerabilities to take sort of uh, to leapfrog over the other work that you've got in your sprint backlog that says, hey, this just came in and this needs to this needs to be addressed now. I, I will say, like, Ken and Jen, as you were talking, like, I feel like the words went back into my mouth because, like, we, we talked about this in the last episode, and I feel like it's almost, at least to me personally, this may not be product engineering in general, like, a culturally ingrained issue where, you know, through the startups I've worked in, through the larger, you know, enterprise companies I've worked in, it's it's instilled. You're either security is yet to become a first-class citizen, so you continue to have that mindset of, like, having it last. So at least for me, what I can take away of this is, engineers or product engineers need to be proactive and you know if you can use scrum or agile as a tool to help protect yourself you can include security in that process where uh you know if you're if you have the ability to raise awareness about tech debt you can raise awareness about a security issue and get a champion forward uh but thank you for correcting me (laughs) (laughs) i mean i i mean i do think that like we've sort of we're starting to tease it out a little bit but what I'm understanding is that if a security requirement, if, if your organization is mature enough to have security requirements in, and to, to get them into the early stages of product development, and those requirements aren't met, then obviously, or maybe not obviously, but they should go through the bug process, right? And you shouldn't have to have like security have, has discovered this through their you know, vulnerability management process or VTM to say, hey, I found that you guys didn't do this issue or that you, you know, I, you know, the password complexity requirements aren't there and then that gets fed back in. I think that should be handled separately. But if it's like, you know, we said that the password requirements were, were X and I was able to create this password uh, as part of the, the test pipeline, like that was a requirement. This is a bug. Uh, whereas if it's something that was not planned and it, and it is a vulnerability that you've discovered as a security engineer, then yes, that should be handled in a vulnerability management process. Now, how closely that is attached to your bug process is sort of culturally relevant here it, with, within the organization. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's when you're talking about a larger company, I think that's easy when you're talking about, you know, little little nitty, nitty, like just small things, small bugs, small vulnerabilities. But typically when you're at that size, the problems you're looking at are, are usually monolithic applications that are just, a security bomb waiting to happen. So I think you have to level set. How do you want to approach that? Do you want to get leadership buy-in on saying, hey, we're going to spend a month and a half fixing this? Or do you want to pitch it as, hey, we're going to plan this out as a maybe a year-long project. We're, we're just going to be uh, chipping away at this until probably we have a new application. So I, I think that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. So this sort of this sort of brings me to my next question, Jen, and and that is, I wanted to get your take on the concept. Have you have you um, ever seen or or worked with uh, abuser stories as opposed to user stories? <laughs> uh, I can't say that um, I've heard that term before, but it is, I think, pretty funny, and I think I know what you mean. Um, yeah, I think I think it happens. Um, I think it comes down to um, being able to go back to your scrum master and say, hey, this this isn't right. This isn't going to work for us. Like, we need to have the right user story. It needs to be something that we can actually ingest and, and be able to show that 
we met the acceptance criteria here and it, it's a well thought out story. Um, if that's not there, you know, you as a developer should never be picking that up in the first place. You should absolutely take that right back to your scrum master and say, hey, we're not working on this. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because um, that's like a, a user story quality thing, which I think that um, I definitely had like, I do take umbrage with a lot of user stories. I think they come across as tasks, but that I feel like we would go definitely down another rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but an abuser story is something I read about recently, sort of just in preparation for this call. So I don't really have a lot of a background on it, on it either, but it's essentially like the evil version of a user story. So the user story will describe the feature or functionality that will eventually be part of the application. And the abuser story is, is basically how someone might take advantage of this particular user story. So the user story might be like, I want to log in to my application and be able and be presented with um, the most relevant information. And an abuser story might be, I log in and I want to steal uh, the information that is that is presented to me. I have not seen that before, but that is something new that I've learned today. Um, I think that's a kind of interesting way to think about approaching a situation. Uh, it's getting you into a different mindset where you might sit down and look at a user story that says, you know, in the example you use, I need to do this. Um, and it's straightforward and, you know, they probably don't put much thought into it. But when you twist the, the thinking around it, the approach, you could have entirely different outcomes that might be uh, more inclusive of edge cases that um, really hack away at sort of that problem in a way that you wouldn't necessarily um, do in a situation where those steps are lined up for you. You're only looking for what is in the acceptance criteria. When you approach it with that sort of abuser um, outlook on it and say, I want to do this malicious thing. Well, you're opening it up to all sorts of edge cases, things that you might not have captured in, in that user story. Right. I mean, I, I found it, I found it to be sort of fascinating, right? Because from the security perspective, when we talk about threat modeling, you know, we're, we're getting into this um, mindset of how do we incorporate a long process, like threat modeling along uh, this large application in an agile scrum world. And I thought this idea of abuser stories was really interesting because it's almost encouraging whether the security engineer or a product engineer or DevOps or, you know, anybody in the involved with the application can look at it and go, well, how would, how would I abuse this user story? You can almost ask anyone to think through that. And that's really what we want to do with threat modeling is we want to make sure that application owners, product owners, engineers are thinking about, okay, I do this if I go down the right path, but I can I can always take advantage of it in this way. That mindset is what we're really trying to encourage. So I'd love to get everyone's opinion, honestly, on that approach. You know, if, if we, maybe we said every user story needs an abuser story. I mean, b before Jen starts, I would I would argue that that just belongs as part of the story, the original story. If you want that to be part of the requirement, saying I want to be I want to be able to log in, or, or as well, if I do this, I can I should not be able to pull this user's information. Or if you want to reverse that and call it an abuser story, I just feel like that's part of the criteria. Well, you're you're talking about the security requirement, right? 
I want to log in. And so it, I should, I should be able to log in. These are the things I should be able to do. And these are the things I shouldn't be able to do. But the user uh -oh. story, the user story is like, I, you know, and Jen, please correct me if I'm wrong in understanding <laughs> a user story here. But my understanding of a user story is that you come in, you say, okay, I want a particular feature in the process. So as a user, I want to perform this task and it should provide me with these things. Right. And yep. so then you have acceptance criteria that it, in order to say I've adequately uh, fulfilled this, these, this is my acceptance criteria that I, that I need in order for that to be fulfilled. And a user story is the same viewpoint, basically as an attacker, as an abuser of this specific user story where you're looking for this information, I want to take advantage of this information, or I want to break this thing, or I want to, and it's the mindset that your offensive security engineers have every time they go after your application, right? You'd say, I want to log in. I say, I want to break in. So I, uh, I think I sort of already said this, but I want to reinforce it. It presents a different mindset for your engineer to think of ways that are going to leave you vulnerable. So instead of saying that, you know, I want to log in, great, there's, you know, a path to do that and, and that makes sense and you get a successful login. But when you say, I want to break in, Okay, well, how am I going to exploit that? Where am I going to go looking for ways to poke, you know, holes in your, you know, your application and find a way in there? You're not looking for all of those when you're just doing a user story. So that, you know, that abuser story is going to be, I think, much more valuable to, uh, you know, like, you know, determining a threat and, and being able to uh, be very proactive in making sure that they can't get through. Yeah, I mean, it, it, kind of, it kind of sounds like you're taking the threat model, Ken, right? And you're kind of sushimiing it down into smaller pieces and putting it into the backlog of so that it's more or less uh, actionable by the, the dev team, right? So rather than that, here is this giant, you know, I've seen some of the threat models you've written, right? But like, here's, here's the tome of information about every possible thing. And instead, it's like, here's the little bits, and I'm going to feed you them piece by piece so that you can digest them properly and you know make sense of them and think about them as you go through the development process. Right. And and I mean I haven't I haven't used this in practice, right? I I haven't used an abuser story. I and so I'm just sort of bouncing this off of you all because to me, you know, what I'm searching for in a threat model is how do I how can I get everyone to think about security in this way or how can i make sure that product engineers devops are thinking about it in this way um because and sometimes it's hard because when you look at a threat model you're trying to think of all the possible things that go wrong so typically the way that we do this is collaboratively we get to a room we spend anywhere from like two hours or i shouldn't say that but anywhere from like an hour <laughs> to multiple four hour eight hour sessions days where you just get into a room and you whiteboard what could go wrong with with people that are on the ground in in the application architects developers product engineers project managers any ux ui right everyone is trying to sort of say oh well, i think maybe this could happen or maybe that could happen and if you reduce that to the person that is responsible for a specific story i just feel like it's not as overwhelming 
right? You can just say, look, all you got to do is think about this one user story. How would you abuse it? And even just one idea that comes out of that is beneficial to your security team. I definitely think that would help product engineering too, because we, we mentioned this before. One of the big struggles that I have is, is the how in terms of security assessments and, and when, how to uh, fix security issues. So if we can do the how with you, rather than having just a ticket that says, no, you can't do that. Having, you know, tickets of, okay, you can't do that. Let's talk about how we can do that. And let's actually break that down as a team and start to understand uh, the actual requirements of that I think would be super useful. So it's a really interesting concept. So I don't want to monopolize the conversation here. Um, we've talked about a lot of security topics um, and we have a limited amount of, of, of Jen's brain here. So Simon or Jameson, anything you want to throw out there in sort of the, the world of, of uh, DevSecOps that we haven't talked about so far? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like Jen and I probably agree on most things. Uh, like, again, product engineering is the first class citizen and, you know, Scrum Masters are basically our, our bodyguards. So uh, you can't really complain there. But one one question I did have for Jen um, is, you know, through just processes of development and everything that's happened through the years, you know, starting from things like Waterfall and then moving to Agile. I'm curious where you think Agile is going to be as we progress through systems because you have so many so many things that are easier to do. It just created more complex problems. So, you know, Jameson's land is all, you know, config as code and, you know, deploying to the cloud and having everything virtual and everything kind of, uh, you know, standardized and, and security's getting there, I think, probably. <laughs> But, you know, with the problems we're trying to solve now, I I am worried that it, it's harder to turn that into um, a standard project because you look at, you know, large companies like Google and Facebook, the problems they're solving are not, you know, I'd like to add this feature for my user. It's, it's always, how do I make, you know, Google search better? How do I make, you know, relevant things to show better? And there's not really a uh, you know, an acceptance criteria there. You you have to think of a metric that you want to reach. You want to think of a certain solution that might be good enough. And so I'm curious in your thoughts, where where can Agile go from here to help address that? Because there's, you know, a simple spike ticket or a spike user Tory isn't, ne isn't necessarily going to be the solution there anymore. So I want to touch on a couple things that you said and address it in a couple different ways. And the first thing that comes to mind and sort of the examples that you gave, um, I think a lot of, in my experience, a lot of product managers, aka product owners, have come into the role and they have not had any sort of training on Agile or Scrum. They've just been presented with, this is your product and make it successful. But they don't understand the fundamentals that have to be in place for that to be successful. You need to understand delivering value. Like that's the ultimate sort of criteria of Agile and Scrum is what is the value we're giving to our customers? And if you think about it with that lens, it, I think it paints a different picture and you have a different perspective. You know, would I do this thing? Um, does it make sense to build this? Are, are people going to use it? Like the classic example I hear in every sort of training or certification I go to is if you think about Clippy back in like Microsoft, you know, <laughs> Windows early days, like or office early days, um, Clippy cost millions of dollars to make and nobody used it. Like nobody bothered to say, is this something that our customers really want? And so 
I think to address some of those concerns is, is being engaged with your customers through your product owners, through your product managers early and often because those conversations need to happen. Is this something that is gonna be valuable? Will you use it? Does it, does it benefit us in any way to do this? Um, I think if you're having those conversations, you know, you sort of weed some of that out. Um, in terms of, I think where other things are going, I think we're changing now due to the pandemic. Um, you know, whereas in, you know, Several years ago, it was, you know, uh, co-located teams. Everybody needed to be co-located, and that was the way to be the most successful. And I think we've shown that we can still be successful given um, a distributed workforce. We're still, you know, getting things done. We've adapted. We're, we're, we're successful at it, right? The world's still going on, and, and we're still, you know, putting software out into the world. Um, I think that we will just sort of adapt as things come to us and, and make the changes that need to be made, it, you know, to continue being successful. But some of that, I think, too, is you, you, it really comes back to having solid product representation and them feeling like a team member. I, I, I love that you use Clippy in that example. Poor Clippy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I think this resonates a lot with what you're saying before is you, you need a solid process, especially now more than ever. But first and foremost, you need empathy. Your process is going to change and you need to adapt to it. And, and if you have stubborn people who don't want to, you know, deal with your team, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah, I think I think that point about people that uh, are unwilling to change, like you'll find that in, I think, any engineering team that you've got one person that, you know, it, this doesn't work for me and I'm not going to do it that way. And you have to make a tough decision. Is that person right for your team? Are they lifting your team up or are they holding you back? And I think if you have a successful scrum master, they'll notice that right away and call it out and say, this person is really holding the team back. We've sort of lost some trust with this person. You know, how do we fix it? Yeah, I think empathy is a big part of that. You never have that problem in security teams ever. What, only, <laughs> only, only engineering teams. Yeah, security is never like you have to fix this for no reason. <laughs> they would never. never do such. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I like the empathy piece. I'm, I'm, I'm. I think that security, I mean, obviously I was being sarcastic in case anyone wouldn't pick up on that. You know, I'll do my slash S anytime. Yeah, but the uh, but I do want to say that security teams aren't, I think we're getting better in the industry, but they're, we're not empathetic enough, right, to what um, what engineering is trying to do. And I think that there there is that that sort of overlap, right, where security is thinking in their heads the same thing I think that product engineering and DevOps are thinking in their heads is that you don't understand my problem, right? You don't understand where I'm coming Absolutely. from. Like if I, if you don't do this, it's not just because I'm, I'm being, you know, a jerk. Uh, I had to just hold back my swearing so that we don't have to mark explicit on this episode. But <laughs> I, you know, I'm I I'm not trying to be a jerk. I just you you know, if you don't do this, like all the things I've seen, you haven't seen the things I've seen, right? Um, and empathy is a big part of that. But uh, security also has to kind of understand that, you know, at a certain point, you're you're detrimental to the product. So there is that balance. And without 
good communication channels, you know, it's not, you know, you're not going to deliver anything. So um, there's that. I think that also, uh, Jen, you brought this up and I, I, we've talked about it before, um, delivering value, like you, that is a core tenant. And I think that security doesn't focus enough on, we, we focus a lot on, you haven't seen the things I've seen, but we, <laughs> we don't, we don't necessarily focus a lot on how does this security feature, this security requirement help to push the product forward? Is it something that the customer wants or if, is it something that the customer wants to be protected from, right? If, if I'm, if I'm a financial institution, I think that there's a level of expectation that says, you know, I don't want my information on a public S3 bucket. And so this is what the customer wants. And that should be something that is in the, in the requirements and that is driven from that viewpoint, as opposed to here are all the bad things that can happen if you have sensitive information in a public S3 bucket and looking at it from that requirement viewpoint, from that user story, from that abuser story, getting involved with your engineering teams is hugely important for a security engineer to do or a product security engineer to do to just like get maybe not embedded physically in that team, but embedded in like what that team is trying to do. Yeah. And I think, I think building relationships too with your corresponding product owners so that they understand, you know, from a, from a security perspective, building relationships with those product owners so that, you know, somebody who's not coming from a traditional uh, SecOps background understands the importance of why some of these things need to happen. And, and find opportunities along the way to build that into um, your software. You know, and, and having that relationship uh, is it's important in a couple of ways. When you build relationships with these people and something urgent comes in and it's really important and you know it needs to happen from a security standpoint, it's easier to have that conversation with your product person and say, hey, this is this is really critical. I know I'm coming to you. I know you've got a lot on your plate. I know there's a lot you want to get out, but this is, you know, X, Y, and Z. If you don't have that relationship and you go to that product owner, that product manager and say, this needs to happen. Here's, here's the reasons. Like there's no empathy there. They don't understand where you're coming from. They're probably going to be a little less likely to prioritize that in your sprint backlog. Um, so that's one way to look at it. If you're building those relationships, you know, you're going to be more successful in getting some of those things that you need built. Um, I think that's the way to look at it. No, I, I, I agree with you. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, I, I haven't even uh, brought up, you know, product owners in the, in this, you know, sit up until this point, but you're hundred percent correct. I don't, you know, we do focus a lot on sort of going straight to the technical resource of saying, you know, Hey, this needs to be fixed. You need to fix it. And we don't spend a, enough time necessarily in the industry going to product owners to say, you know, th these are the reasons why security is important and demonstrating that and educating, um, you know, why this might be something that the customer wants or going through that process. And, and that is key. And back to your point about leadership and getting that buy-in, maybe, maybe I'm misspeaking here, but I think that your product owners are leaders in that degree, right? They, they are overseeing this entire product and they make decisions based on that and they're they're funneling up all of these requirements so if they understand you 
they can help drive your mission, your security mission into your engineering teams. And so if you're coming at it from all angles, you'll be much more successful than trying to approach everything from the bottom up. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Being the voice of the customer, that's hugely important. I've I've definitely can I've had security engineers come to me with with asks and I'll just say like nope, not for three sprints. And you know, I, I just see the sad puppy just walk away and take his paper and throw it in the trash. So, you know, as a product engineer, yeah, I agree. I can totally rely on my product manager. They ultimately are making the decision of what we choose to launch. And I can relay what I find is technically valuable. So I, I think something that we can do better is help teach security engineers who may not be understanding of the process, why the process exists and how, how they can work with us instead of just saying no, you know, having them the, the power to say, okay, well, well, why not? Like, just like anything that changes in, in Agile and Sprints, where can we compromise and where can we work with your product manager to, to show the value? Exactly. Um, so look, we are, we're coming right up into the hour. Uh, Jen, you've been, you know, definitely informative to all of us, but I do want to, just in case, do you have any questions for us that, you know, this is brought up or you're that, that maybe you have around security or DevOps or engineering that you haven't asked us <laughs> maybe on air or at all that you want to throw out there? Sure. I would love to know where you see opportunities for your teams um, to plug in better in terms of sort of traditional scrum. You know, where do you see that opportunity, that small win that would make your lives a lot easier? And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, overhauling scrum or anything like that, but just, you know, if there's some small adjustment that you think would, would add a ton of value to your teams or make your lives easier, you know, what would you do differently? That, you know, that is within your control. Because it's hard to get leadership to necessarily, you know, want to advocate for a ton of change. So, um, yeah, what what practical changes would you make if if you could? Yeah, I I can I can go first. I think the biggest uh, struggle for me that I've seen is uh, using agile to work with a team that has uh, people that are from another embedded organization. So, uh, you know, examples of this is maybe you have a vendor or a CRM that you have a huge investment in to the point where maybe you have an administrative team that helps you deal with that. When you when you have them fully dedicated and embedded to your team, I, I find it very difficult to uh, to use Agile because Agile has the mentality and please correct me if I'm wrong. But, you know, when you're sizing tickets and you're doing work, essentially everyone is the same and everyone has the same you know, skill set and capability. And when you have an embedded team, that's no longer the case. So you start to basically project plan or scope out tickets based on specific people rather than specific tasks or stories. So uh, yeah, that's, that's a topic that I'm, I'm still trying to figure out. Um, you know, I don't know if it's, it's the solution is sharing skill sets or, you know, splitting out or coming up with a new way to, to do things, but that's, that's definitely something that's on, on top of my mind. What about you, Ken? Um, well, let me ask you this. Where do you see security in what you labeled as traditional Scrum? I see security uh, in an ideal situation. Um, they have representation. You have a staff team that is able to spend cycles um, going over user stories, looking at pull requests, 
being involved and being uh, represented, like that's the biggest thing is representation, that they have a voice as well. Um, being able to have those conversations with product managers so that they can establish why these things are important, right? Like, I, you know, today, I couldn't tell you if, if a product manager from one of my teams has ever had a conversation with somebody from security. I just don't think that happens. And so um, I think that's hugely important in having that relationship and that representation um, so that they feel they feel bought into what's being built, um, but everybody else on the team feels bought into why security is important. Right. Okay. So in that traditional sense, I think the biggest problem that we have, and I know that you didn't ask about what problems we have, you asked about like what solutions we can provide, but the biggest problem that we have is that traditionally security is not staffed for the, for the traditional definition. And so what I would say is the biggest thing that scrum masters or any sort of um, overarching management type of body can do for security is to help facilitate a, um, an integration point with security that matches the staff size. So if you have a security team that can support every single one of your development teams, you should work with your security team to ensure that there is a representative in every single one of those standups. If, if you don't have that and the security team is not staffed to that capacity, you should work with those security representatives to understand how you can get 100% coverage in all of your teams with security asks and requests. And that is going to get creative, right? That has to be a creative solve if the business either can't afford to staff all of the security um, engineers that they need, or if they, if, if it's just not a priority. Now it's the security, it's the security team's responsibility to educate, like you said, right. To make sure that, you know, if the, if the product, um, owners or project managers or scrum masters or anybody that's overseeing these, these things is helping them to get the information that they need. It's their responsibility to out of band work, to educate the, the organization in the best way that they know how, and that doesn't mean going and buying the latest vendor tool that does security awareness training. That means getting involved with your teams and understanding like where, you know, what is important to your organization from a security perspective, and then getting that out into the organization in whatever, in whatever way people learn. And we talked about how different people learn in different ways in one of these episodes. And so it's, it's like, that is your job as a security engineer to be that people person to understand how security influences your organization. And that is, that is your role. So scrum masters can help you, but you're going to have to help them as well. Yeah. Very well said. All right. Um, Ken, I think it was episode five was the, the ways people learn. It's just looking at my notes, but um, yeah, I mean, from a DevOps perspective, it kind of depends on the, the organization's approach, right. Um, and in kind of how you define that or what that team structure is. But I, I would say the, Similar to security, the, the big problem that, that I always see, and I, again, <laughs> to Ken's point, you didn't ask for problems, so I'm sorry. Um, but uh, it, it's really that information sharing and that education, right? And that, that kind of goes both ways, right? Like DevOps, security, like, you know, we're, we're doing things that impact product engineering and, you know, we need to make sure that we kind of manage that awareness, make sure folks are aware that 
we are doing these things. I guess more so even on the DevOps side is like, we're going to do this thing. It could break everything. Hopefully it doesn't, but you know, you guys need to be aware of this, right? Um, or we're making this change. It's going to change the behavior. You may not even notice, but just so in case you do, this is what happened, right? Um, and how to manage that in Scrum, I think is difficult because, you know, in every organization I've ever been, I don't think I've ever seen um, like a one-to-one -one relationship of like DevOps people to product engineers or even an appropriate staffing level where one person could be dedicated or embedded in each team. It's just in large organizations, it's, it's not realistic. And in small organizations, I'd say it's even less realistic just because it's just usually not budget for that. Um, and, and like things that I've seen tried are like Scrum of Scrums where it's like, hey, we hold this, you know, weekly some meeting or whatever. And we get a representative from each team in product engineering and, and we kind of we brief them and they brief us and everyone comes away more informed on things. Um, but I would say that's really a big problem is really that information sharing um, becomes problematic with just trying to ensure that, um, you know, that everyone's kind of has that common context of what's going on. Other than that, I I um I don't think I have any other questions for you guys. Just curious to get your take. Well, thank you. Um, well, then I guess that about wraps it up. Um, Jen, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on and and sharing your thoughts and uh, and bantering with us. Yeah, of course. Um, is there so is there anything? Here. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything you want to close out with? Um, maybe how people can reach you if they have opinions or questions about anything that you've said, any shout outs or uh, anything interesting you're working on you want to call attention to? Um, I think, you know, I'll keep it short and sweet. I, I'm not somebody of too many words. Um, I think you really want to uh, trust in Scrum in the process. It's, it's successful for a reason. Um, I know it's tough for somebody coming from a waterfall environment, um, but there's a reason why so many large companies, so many successful organizations are doing Agile and Scrum, um, mostly Scrum. Um, you know, give it some time. If you're sort of on the fence about it or you're struggling with it, reach out to your Scrum master. They're there to be your advocate, to shield you from all the sort of painful things that are going on. Um, they're there to, to help you so reach out and use that resource um in terms of plugs if anybody wants to get a hold of me or wants to talk about scrum or has questions about anything i said i'm on linkedin uh jennifer molino um ken i think you can drop a link uh for this podcast is that correct yeah absolutely i'll throw awesome. it in the description perfect yeah, I'll definitely put your information out there if you want me to. Um, so, so cool. Well, again, thank you so much for for joining us. It's been a pleasure, and thank you for being our first guest and working through us with uh, you know all the all the technical difficulties we had in the beginning and everything. Uh, it's been it's been awesome. Um, so that again, everyone that's listening, that wraps it up for this episode. Uh, as always, you can reach us uh, online www at uh, what am I saying www.r2dso.com. You can reach us on Twitter at r2dso, and uh, if you want to send us an email, it's security at r2dso.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>